We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer Skin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Ken Mann. Jen McQueen. The parliamentary budget <laughs> office now says that the carbon tax will cost the majority of Canadians rather than be revenue neutral. A tax that costs doesn't cost us? Who was smart enough to believe that? Here's Scott Thompson. Wait a minute. What? What was that? Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML, 980 CFPL in London. Uh, another giant day. We're having a great time here uh, trying to assemble a show. And as you are, you know, stories of uh, years gone by are uh, are haunting us. Things that uh, have have come out of the past and and um, and and just keep coming back and in, into the news. We'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, wait a sec. First, uh, rock the Casbah, Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer, yep, number 125 on uh, Rolling Stone's Top 200 Singers of All Time. A lot of people are uh, don't think of The Clash when they think of vocal perfection, but who would have thunk? Uh, feel free, weigh in, love to hear from you. All right, we're milking it for everything we can. Not a lot going on. Um, you know, Donald Trump, yeah, okay, uh, next page. Uh, you know, some good news though, housing market is starting to rebound and things, uh, are starting to level out a bit, not to where they were last year, but I think the last couple of years have pretty much been, uh, an anomaly. So, uh, but the good news is they do seem to be stabilizing. Uh, Justin Trudeau was speaking in Alliston today. Not much about that because there was nothing new here. Uh, really, uh, just talking about the opposition rather than Canadian solutions and, um, and I guess selling the budget. But the big news, uh, really is um, rats at 24 Sussex Drive. Now, of course, the um, as you know, because you've seen the, the prime minister at his home all during the pandemic uh, and camping out at Rideau College, uh, much smaller but nicer, he said. What was it he said? Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, smaller but better. <laughs> when he was asked about it today at the news conference in uh, Allison, we decided to move our family into Rideau College. It was smaller, but it was better. You know, at a merely, what, 5,000 square feet. All right, we'll leave it at that. So, um, and, and I mean, you could go back to Jean Chrétien, and even before that, uh, there were all kinds of stories, and I think Rick Mercer on uh, Way Back This Hour has 22 minutes in his show and what have you. They were constantly making fun of uh, 24 Sussex and its lack of, uh, renovation that was needed. And it's kind of bizarre because, you know, it's not like it involves the prime minister of the day. This is something that you do for future prime ministers, uh, and, and future leaders. And, and, you know, this is not just a, a nice house for them to live in. It's supposed to be a functional office, a functional, uh, wing, a functional home, uh, everything you know, and secure and all that stuff, kind of like the White House. <laughs> so, you know, uh, as you move uh, people around Ottawa and in and out of little parks and cottages and whatever, I mean, at what time do we do we address this? Uh, and again, the prime minister was asked this and pretty much like he does everything. I don't know, not my problem. Ask the National Capital Commission. Uh, the NCC is uh, another one of those organizations in Ottawa that just continually funds stuff of, you know, it's 
it, it, it's just part of the Ottawa bubble. It's part. If you, I've lived in Ottawa. You live in Ottawa, man. It's just like I'm in. Where am I? It's like leave it to Beaver. I'm in Pleasantville uh, because it, it just gets funded from so many different levels of government. There's so many things going on. It's 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 unbelievable. So the National Capital Commission is in charge of. I guess, 24 Sussex, but it just keeps getting punted farther and farther and farther down the road. So uh, listen to this, uh, and here's an interesting report from the Canadian press that gives you more on all of that. When a lumber baron first built a home for his wife at 24 Sussex Drive, he described it as a place of peace. But now it has become a place of rodents. The National Capital Commission says the rodent infestation is so severe that the walls, attic and basement are filled with carcasses and excrement. The commission says it's even led to air quality concerns. This new information was released in public documents this week. The rodents are one of the reasons why the commission closed the building. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau hasn't lived in the official residence since being elected. That's because six 60 years of mounting repairs has deteriorated the building. Mickey Judich, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. All right, so there you have it. Um, and, and, you know, I find, you know, Ottawa doesn't even want to admit that it's got a rat problem. That's what I think. It's filled with rats. It's filled with rats. It's not squirrels, not chipmunks, it's not groundhogs, uh, it's not deer, uh, uh, stray dogs. It, it's filled with rats. And there's carcasses in the walls. They're dying in the walls. So anybody that's ever had an issue with rodents know what that is like. So I don't know. Uh, short of literally tearing everything out of the a- interior and going in there with a sandblaster, which I can understand a historic building, but why are Canadians paying for that? Let some historic commission, some, uh, you know, lottery in Ottawa do that. Why don't we just build a, a brand new complex that works? And does everything, a place where people can meet, where dignitaries can gather, where, uh, you know, a wing where the, the leader of the day and his family or her family can reside. I mean, it's just it, it, we need to build a complex that does all of this, not just a historic building that was once owned by a lumber baron. And then we've got to maintain it. You don't see this sort of crap happening at the White House. So where's the solution? In Ottawa, there is never a solution. There's just another meeting, another committee, and another punting of the ball down the field. So where does this go after the prime minister moves out of 24 Sussex? Or sorry, moves out of Rideau Cottage. Does the next prime minister move in there? Do we just keep going with that? And what is the National Capital Commission's role here? And if it is to take care of this sort of stuff why isn't that happening because that's what the prime minister says don't ask me man it's up to the national capital commission i got nothing to do with it so we are where we are and once again nothing's working in ottawa what a surprise uh we're going to talk to sabrina maddo about that columnist with the national post and who's got a column on this today how many times have we heard uh, over the years, and, you know, I'm uh, I'm 60 years old now, so uh, several times I have heard about the dilapidated 24 Sussex Drive, where it, whether it's Rick Mercer on TV or some other comedian making fun of it in some way, or and just that this keeps getting punted and punted and punted down the field as if it's uh, up 
to the individual prime minister to decide what is going on because uh, it's his house? Uh, are we not looking at or her house? Are we not looking at the future here? Are we not looking at a complex which can serve a multitude of purposes other than uh, the merry-go-round we have now going in and out of cottages and, and, and trying to find a place to call uh, an official residence as this thing just continues to deteriorate? Uh, Sabrina Maidu is with us, columnist with the National Post, and has a good one today. Rat-infested 24 Sussex, the perfect metaphor for Trudeau's Canada. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, and you're well. It's an interesting piece you penned today, and and not far off. What, whose responsibility is this? It seems as if no prime minister of the day ever really wanted to touch it. The prime minister was asked today in Allison about this, and he said, uh, National Capital Commission, don't ask me, whose role is this? I mean, ultimately, if a prime minister wanted to lead the charge on renovating or reconstructing 24 Sussex, they could do that. And the problem has been that no one seems to want to touch it because they're scared there will be backlash that, for example, Justin Trudeau is spending X number of millions on his own home. But the truth is, like you said in the introduction, this isn't any one prime minister's home. It's the people's home. It's Canada's home. It's something that we should be proud of. It should be a symbol for, you know, our national unity and for being able to welcome uh, leaders and host official state functions without um being embarrassed or i mean we can't even host anything there now because it's been officially closed due to the extent of the deterioration so it's something that we have to get done for the future it's just not acceptable for our the leader of our nation to not have uh, a residence in good standing what's living there other than um uh, uh, leaders of any sort like you you said rats i'm hearing rodents it's a rodent sounds like it's invaded with uh, uh, infested with chipmunks but obviously this is a pretty severe problem if it gets to this point where people can't go in it you're talking about major major renovations here oh yeah it's it's awful um we've known for a while that there's faulty wiring lots of safety hazards asbestos um that there were raccoons living in the place. Uh, and then they closed it down officially in November, and a National Post reporter requested documentation on that and found out one of the major reasons is because there are rodents infested in the house, and not just live ones, but countless carcasses of dead ones um, in the walls, along with all their excrement, and the air might not be safe to breathe. And they also found out, because the house was still hosting garden parties, uh, over the summers that there was a garden mm-hmm. party there with lots of VIPs in 2019 um, while there was a tornado warning in Ottawa. And luckily, the tent it was under held up and nothing bad happened. But the Capital Commission was worried that had those guests had to go inside the house, we would have been stuck with a pretty dire situation because it's simply not safe. Why are we, is it, why are we talking about this now? Why is this coming out now? If this was back in November, it was closed. Uh, because we just got the documents at the National Post um, after an access uh, to information request. And, why would well, they, why Sabrina? Why would they not just tell you what's what's happening? What's the big deal here? I mean, everybody knows the state of Twenty Four Sussex. That's that's always the question with this government. Um, access to information is increasingly difficult, and there are lots of delays. They might say it's because of personnel shortages, uh, but it's been a pattern under the uh, Trudeau government. 
So uh, is is there no way? Here's my idea. Uh, get rid of it as the uh, prime minister's residence. Build a complex, as you said, that suits a multitude of different things, whatever that is, including uh, housing the prime minister's family and such, secure, able to hold uh, meetings in situations as you're describing, and then just let some other, like the NCC, take over this. They can hold a lottery, a raffle, and redo it when they see fit and create a uh, historic site, whatever they want to do, another museum in Ottawa out of it. But why are we just not moving on? Because it obviously seems that there is no other option for this place. No, there is no other option. And that's why I agree it needs to be depoliticized in some way, whether that's giving complete control to some sort of government organization um, or whether it's all the parties coming together and saying, look, this is something we need to do. We're not going to make this a partisan issue and delve into attacks. Uh, this is something for the good of the country because it's only going to get more and more expensive. Uh, the quote what right now to make it just safe to enter is 10 million, but to bring it up to something actually resembling good condition is now over 36 million. And the longer we wait, uh, the bigger the bill for taxpayers is going to be. So historically, I, you know, I you know, heard the story about the lumber baron, but historically what it's really known for is being dilapidated. There's not really any history there, is there? There's, there's not a ton. It's, yeah, probably Canadians know it more at this point for being dilapidated, and it's gotten more media coverage for that than uh, when it was actually in functioning order. Um, and, you know, not that many of our prime ministers have actually lived in the residence. So in terms of it being a huge historical gem it's not really i think that if we want to tear it down and build something better starting from scratch uh that we should be able to do so so where does the next prime minister live or the next prime minister after that i mean it, because is it, it and at what point does uh, rito cottage become the real official residence and 24 sussex just taken off the you know the program mm-hmm yeah, uh, well, it seems like for the foreseeable future that Rideau Cottage will be the residence, even for whoever wins the next election. Uh, but I don't think that's a permanent solution, and I do think there is something to the address of 24 Sussex, and Rideau Cottage can't perform um, all the functions we'd want an official residence to do in terms of events and hosting. So I think that we do need a solution on this property. Sabrina Madu with us, columnist with the National Post and the latest uh, Rat Infested 24 Sussex, the perfect metaphor for Trudeau's Canada uh, as we keep hunting this problem down the road. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly know about the situation ongoing. It was supposed to be over in a few days. It just continues and continues and continues. Uh, that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And now an officer in uh, Russia President uh, Putin's secretive elite personnel security service has defected from Russia. What does this mean? What does it say about what is going on inside of Russia? Matthew Light is with us, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, uh, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks. Great to be with you. So your thoughts on this, what stands out to you uh, on this issue of this uh, highly uh, elite personnel, security person uh, defecting? Well, a few things. I guess the first point I would make is that it's all still rather vague. Um, we don't even quite know where this person is. From the reports I've seen, um, he defected and has given an interview that has been furnished to the press. It's certainly possible that some Western government has him 
uh, under his protection and is um, interviewing him further and that he will be resettled, but it's all rather um, unclear at this point. So with that caveat, if we assume that um, his statements are genuine, I think what emerges is um, another example of somebody who is not pleased with the direction of things in Russia. Um, as your question implies, it's not all that common to see these defections. In fact, I think a lot of us um, you know, have wondered why there haven't been more since the uh, full-scale invasion began more than a year ago. Um, there is some evidence that people in Putin's inner circle have lost confidence in him uh, and that he is a somewhat diminished figure even within the elite. Um, to the extent that his inner circle are saying things like this in private, and in some cases, as in this one, perhaps defecting, that's a positive sign for those who hope to see um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, fail and, and uh, the Russian government uh, compelled to uh, acknowledge its defeat in Ukraine. Um, it's nonetheless worth noting that Putin's support, um, at least in some sense, has remained solid. He has not um, mobilized against him, or, or let, let me rephrase that, there has not been mobilized against him any kind of clear uh, anti-Putin coalition that is uh, that seems to be preparing to remove him from power or that, that has um, publicly expressed criticism of him. Uh, if this all seems to be as, as told to this point, who would this person share information with? Who would he be speaking with? Well, it's all rather speculative, but I would certainly imagine that Western intelligence agencies would be very interested in what he has to what he has to say about um, uh, the state of play in the Kremlin. Um, reading reading what has been disclosed to the press, I would say that based on my understanding of the situation, what we've been told is in some sense interesting, but not um, wildly different from what we already knew, which was that Putin has led a very reclusive life since the pandemic, that he has health problems. Mm -hmm that he's rather fanatical about his health, um, that insulates him from other people, um, that he um, um, is no longer in contact with people who don't um, share his uh, views about the Ukraine war and so has sort of um, prevented any kind of negative uh, feedback from being reported to him. So in that sense, I think if, this, if these reports are correct, then this person is, is confirming in some sense what was being discussed um, in the press before. Um, I will say that in a way, it's also consistent with other developments that have been noticed in Russia that are sort of pointing in the same direction. So one of these is the emergence of the so-called military correspondent um, uh, figure, um, an important example of whom who went by the, the code name or the, the nom de guerre of Vladlen Tatarsky um, was blown up in an explosion in Petersburg a few days ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been noted that those people also are, in some sense, voicing criticisms of the conduct of the war, not because they disapprove of the war, but because they think that the government has botched it. Um, that does not yet amount to open criticism of Putin's decisions, but it's heading in that direction. Uh, many have said that that perhaps is the first uh, domino to fall. Um, is How is, is Russia reacting to this at this point? Are they acknowledging this at this point? Um, from what I've seen, no, and I would expect that this sort of thing would not receive coverage in the Western, in the Russian press, unless it becomes much bigger and they can't ignore it. Um, if, in some sense, we already know what they would say about it, right? Which is that uh, this man is a traitor, and everything he says mm -hmm. should be dismissed. Um, it, you know, nonetheless, it's not a good sign for the Russian government when, um, to put it, you know, to to 
to use our perhaps a cliche, the rats start deserting the ship, right? This is somebody who has thrown in his lot very decisively with Putin and has come to the conclusion, whether or not out of sincere conviction or out of self-interest, that the rush that the invasion of Ukraine is turning into a disaster and he doesn't want to be dragged down with Putin. Considering what we've seen in the past, how Russia handles this sort of thing, this man's life is in danger, is it not? I would say absolutely yes. Um, so, uh, you know, Russia has a, a strong track record um, of assassinating yeah. um, government opponents and defectors, and they've carried that out um, in a variety of European countries in recent years, um, including, um, you know, a number of high-profile spectacular assassinations or assassination attempts involving uh, chemical and nuclear um, terrorism. So. I would think that if this, there really is this defector and he really is um, currently being debriefed by Western governments, then he would be very high on the Kremlin's list of people to assassinate. Uh, is Putin just, and again, obviously we're speculating, is Putin literally living day to day here or is there an out? Is there a goal? Is there something that will end this in his eyes, in his mind? Well, um, I think that different views have been raised about what he would regard as sort of the bare minimum. Um, speaking for myself, I think he is aware that it is not likely that he will be able to bring about the immediate overthrow of the Zelensky government and the full conquest of Ukraine. But um, based on the information that we're getting, I think I agree with the vast majority of observers who would say that he has by no means relinquished that as a long-term goal and what he might see as an acceptable a short-term outcome would be um, some kind of uh, quote-unquote negotiated settlement in which he is left in charge of um, some significant portion of Ukrainian territory that he now controls, probably everything he has uh, currently conquered. Um, so my sense is that that is where he would like to end up. Um, the fact that the winter offensive that seems to be now over failed to achieve any significant territorial gains um, mm. is not making it easier for him. So at the moment, um, I'm not quite sure, you know, what what he thinks he can achieve um, beyond perhaps um, wearing down Ukraine through attrition. Uh, Ukraine is um, performing remarkably well in the war, but it does have fewer people than Russia to spare. And um, Russia has been using its convict population who are in some sense, although not in a moral sense, of course, politically expendable to the Russian government, whereas Ukraine has been using its, its, its free citizens to defend itself. Um, so there is that. And Putin may also hope that in the medium term, um, there will be dissatisfaction in Western populations and ultimately in Western governments. So, for example, if a Republican president were to come to power next year, he might expect in that U.S. policy towards Ukraine would change dram dramatically. Uh, is... Uh moving forward with all of this and 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 obviously way back when Putin was concerned about NATO and it, it, it in the in the encroachment of NATO Finland obviously announcing their joint they have joined uh Sweden close behind what would his reaction be to that well it's been very interesting to see the rather subdued reaction um at least on sort of the level of official statements although the pro-government press has been much less restrained um and has um poured out invective upon finland for for um for daring to join nato i think um it's perfectly clear to everybody and the accession to finland has only demonstrated this that russia's neighbors are afraid of it um they want to join nato um, not as an end in itself, but because they view that as the way to guarantee their security against a possible invasion. 
um, as the corollary or the opposite is true of Russia. So to, to preventing the, the expansion of NATO or the, the adhesion of more countries to NATO was one of the goals of this war. And it's just manifestly failed. Mm. Um, in fact, um, some Finnish observers are arguing that from their point of view, what was the initial stimulus for the decision to join NATO was not just the actual invasion of Ukraine, but Putin's statement shortly before the invasion commenced that as a condition for not invading Ukraine, he was demanding that um, NATO agree that no further countries should be permitted to join NATO, not just mm. Ukraine, but presumably also including Finland. And uh, a number of Finnish observers concluded, and probably the government is one of them, that that was not compatible with being an independent state. That essentially Russia was um, demanding and trying to get a kind of veto on on um, their foreign policy decisions. So Matthew Light, really I gotta let, I gotta I gotta cut us off there. We're plumb out of time, Matthew. Matthew Light, Associate Professor of Criminology and Sociological Studies, European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies, University of Toronto. Matthew, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, the headline says it all. Tech war brewing as China hits back at U.S. restrictions on advanced computer chips. You might remember uh, President Joe Biden saying recently in a speech that he wanted to turn the Rust Belt into the chip belt. Uh, is it the way to go? And it's something this man's been talking about for a long time. Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist and with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts on this uh, latest uh, headline, for example, that uh, that uh, China's upset about this. I talked about uh, Biden wanted to turn the Rust Belt into the chip belt. Where are we with this and uh, what does the future hold? I think we're at the beginning of a technology-infused trade war between the West and China, particularly the U.S., but not limited to. Uh, Europe certainly has a role to play in it. Canada as a tech leader also. Uh, you know, the, 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 the sad truth is the same chips that are used to make consumer goods, uh, the high, you know, uh, higher end versions of them can also be used to make weapons, can also be used uh, to drive artificial intelligence, can also be used for cyber crime and cyber terrorism, state sponsored cyber activities. And so, the, you know, the U.S. has been and this all started. This has been going on for years. But as the technology advances, as we move, we move from one generation of chip technology to the next, the concern has been if China is able to manufacture uh, these uh, chips at scale, uh, are they going to use them for good or are they going to use them not for good? And uh, and so as the trade war, as rumblings of a trade war start to accelerate, um, you know, the worry becomes what happened, you know, what is the rest of the world going to do to make sure that a China continues to be a, a, an economic engine to the rest of the world, because that's where we get our iPhones and our our iPads from. Um, but at the same time, how do we ensure that that doesn't contribute to China becoming a military superpower any more than they already are? Uh, so that balance of, of, you know, containment, but maintaining that economic relationship, uh, it's becoming increasingly fraught day by day. And uh, it's hard to tell where this is going to end up, because as a technologist, um, you know, the, 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 you know, we decided that we weren't going to manufacture these things at scale close to home decades ago. Now, maybe we're paying the price. Uh, yeah, boy, how the tone has changed, especially when you read that headline, Carmi. That's something you wouldn't have heard 10 or 20 years ago. 
No, definitely. And I mean, certainly as the saber rattling between the U.S. and China gets gets uh, higher, you know, you, you're having incursions. China is claiming parts of uh, parts of, you know, the, 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 the Yellow Sea, the South China Sea uh, near its borders. They're claiming international waters and international airspace as their own. The U.S. is sending warships and fighter jets through there and they're having confrontations almost on a daily uh, basis. Um, and so all of this happens, of course, as China draws closer to Russia uh, with its participation in, in its Ukrainian invasion. So, you know, you, you have all these intersecting geopolitical and technological sort of facets. Um, and unfortunately for the rest of us, we just want to buy consumer goods at a reasonable price. And one of the reasons why most of the things that we do buy are reasonably priced is because the fundamental parts of it, the components, are made in China. They can do it at a scale that we can't. If you want to move all that manufacturing close to home, you want to set it up in the U.S. or in Canada, guess what? Your iPhone's going to cost two to three times as much, and you're not going to get a new one every year. They'll only be able to flip them over to a new one every two or three years. That's not feasible. And so as China becomes not so much a friend of the West, uh, the technological and business implications of that are becoming increasingly clear. And, you know, if, if you're a business leader in the U.S., if you're a government leader in the U.S., you're like, maybe that strategy that we started 40 or 50 years ago, we need to think about it again, maybe change it back. Wow. Uh, talk about self-sufficiency and, cha- and, and chatter changing about uh, supply chains and such. Uh, can Biden turn the Rust Belt into a chip belt? Um, I think it's a lofty goal. Uh, you know, b- manufacturing ships is an incredibly technology intensive uh, activity. It's an incredibly education intensive activity. The people who, who design and staff these fabs, these factories that create these incredibly sophisticated chips, they need uh, to be incredibly well-educated, well-trained. Uh, and, you know, a workforce that drove a Rust Belt economy isn't necessarily equipped to drive a chip-based economy. Um, so obviously investments need to be made there as well. The U.S. economy, the academic infrastructure needs to prime itself so that they can produce these people who are capable of working at this level. Right now, we're not there at that scale. Uh, certainly not in the U.S., definitely not in Canada. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't get there. There just has to be the will and the investment. And if Biden really means what he says, he'll make sure that the money and the resources are available so that that part of the economy, those cylinders can get fired up fairly quickly and start producing next generation chips in a reasonable amount of time. We're moving in the right direction. It's just going to take a while to get there. Tech War Brewing as China hits back at U.S. restrictions on advanced computer chips. Uh, this is the future, and who gets to be a part of it? Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Always fun, Carmi. Thanks for the time. Be well. Really appreciate it, Scott. Thank you. All right. The last three years have been anything but normal. Uh, and as we try to figure out what the new normal is, um, things are different and changing continuously. I, I think any template that we're seeing now isn't going to be around forever as uh, we continue to move forward out of whatever it is that we were in, whether it's a global pandemic, whether it's uh, affordability issues with interest rates and, and inflation and such. Uh, but the Hamilton real estate market is still being a little impacted by higher lending rates, according to the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. However, it is showing signs of stability. To talk more about all of this, Lou Periano is with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington, and with us now. Lou, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon all. Yeah, doing great. So obviously, Lou, the last three years have been anything but normal. Uh, that being said, we're hearing the word or reading the word stability. What, what can you tell us? Are things at least sort of leveling out, stabilizing for you? 
Yeah, so I think what most people are interested in is the direction of the market rather than, you know, sort of rehashing what happened in January. Uh, having said that, I, we, we are saying that prices have uh, been upticking for three consecutive months now. And uh, certainly places like apartments or row houses have fared much better than um, sort of one million plus uh, single family dwellings. Uh, and they continue to be uh, in demand. We we don't have the inventory that we should. It's less than two months worth of inventory. And really in a balanced market, in a good market, you'd really want to see maybe around four months of inventory so that there's lots out there. Um, sales are down because there's not too, you know very little to pick from still, uh, not because people don't want to buy. But I, I think looking forward, what you have to look at is interest rates, as you mentioned. When you see uh, in that interest rates, for example, in the five-year range are cheaper than the one-year range, that's, that's a reversal of what is normal. Normally, the shorter the term, the less the interest rate. Yeah. And now we're seeing that inversion. So what does that mean? Well, it means that your friendly lender would like to see you lock in, as an example, 5.5% for five years rather than take their one-year rate at 6%. So they're steering you toward that cheaper but long-term rate because they think that rates are going down right. and that uh, they're going to sell that mortgage to you next year at a cheaper rate. So the question is for buyers is, what? so what do I do? Well, if you can afford to buy now and just and finance later, that would be ideal, but of course you can't. You've got to finance now. But you can finance for a short period of time so that when you renew in a year, or a little bit longer, uh, you can take advantage of lower rates as well as uh, pricing, which, although it's on the uptick now, um, I'm, I'm guessing still has a long way to go, the same way that when when interest rates went up, prices went down. Well, guess what? The reverse happens now. And as you said, if you're in the position right now, there is opportunity here. And I've heard many say the exact same thing that you're saying in regard to the higher, uh, longer mortgages and lower interest rates, that it signals that things are about to dip a bit. Are um, are, are people waiting for that? Or yet, on the other hand, if you want to buy, you want to get in earlier than later, right, as, as, as the deals are there. But at the end of the day, we've talked about this before, Lou. Uh, if you got to move in life's changing... And things need to be done. You got to go with it. Of course, um, and and as long as you stay short term, you're sort of protected against you know locking in for a long time at a high rate. Uh, I don't think I don't think that's the case. Anybody should be thinking right now that uh, hey, a year from now we're probably looking at this plus another two percent. I don't think that's realistic. It's mm-hmm. the other way. Uh, yesterday we met, for example, with uh, Federal Minister Katrina Gould out of Burlington. And every time we meet with MPs and MPPs, we express concerns about people getting in the market. And hopefully one day they'll listen. For example, the stress test. Mm. The Bank of England eliminated their stress test three months ago. And uh, I think I, I don't think it was a great piece of legislation or a, a policy, I should say. But what they could do is they could extend amortizations to 40 years from 25 for high ratio mortgages. Uh, they could uh, change the stress test to maybe contract rate plus 1% instead of contract rate plus 2%. So, you know, there, there's lots of things the government can do, and it doesn't cost them a nickel. That's the kicker for them. Uh, so hopefully they'll they'll start listening. But once that happens, if they do listen to that, 
um, then obviously it's going to create demand and prices are going to go up. Simple as that. If you're a consumer, all you care about is what are my monthly payments? And if it's 2000 a month, at 6%, that buys you a certain amount of house. But at 5%, it buys you a whole lot more. So there you go in that escalation. Mm. Okay, let me go to a higher priced house. And the prices go up. So what's in demand? What is more needed now, Lou? And what is more needed? As far as housing. Are are you going to say everything right across the board? Yeah, if you talk about affordable, then obviously you're talking either townhouse, condominium, or something of that nature. Um, there's there's so many ways that that folks could go uh, you know even down to laneway housing for example you know that there's there are off uh, things that you don't often think about so it's it's up to the city and unfortunately the city has uh, I, I think they uh, they planned for 45,000 houses and we need 65,000 hmm. so we you really need to tell your older man or woman that hey you know Let's get on the ball here. How is it that we can have a projection and then say, oh, we're going to take 50% less than that? That All that does is create uh, high rents. You know, they, they sort of are going in both directions at the same time. They're putting out a vacant home tax so that uh, to encourage people to rent their vacant homes. And they've got all kinds of rental ideas. But at the same time, when you stifle building, then yeah. you're just putting more pressure on rent. And that's, and that's what we're hearing more and more, uh, the municipality's responsibility. Lou Periano with us, president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton, Burlington, where the market is right now. Lou, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Call one of our members. They'll tell you what's going on. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Over the weekend, this was fascinating because we've been hearing for years from the prime minister and from environment minister that the carbon tax is revenue neutral. Uh, it's not going to cost you anything. And for eight out of 10 Canadians, it's neutral and, and, and so on and so forth. And now we find out, uh, with journalists questioning, uh, the environment minister over the weekend that in fact, yes, it's the opposite. It will cost most people money and the lo- those that are really saving are those on the uh, extreme lower end of uh, the income st- uh, scale so this is what we've been sold for the last several years does it matter that that's not the case let's bring in tasha carrot and principal at navigator and author of the right path recent column in the national post Stephen gibbon has no plan for those left behind by the green innovation she is with us now tasha thanks for the time i hope you're well Oh, I'm very well, thanks. So this change in stance, Tasha, where everybody's, uh, I, I guess the parliamentary budget officer brought this to people's attention, does it matter? Uh, I think uh, the environment minister's reaction was, yeah, but when you get situations like happen in BC, it's going to cost us a lot of money. However, that wasn't the point. Yeah, it wasn't the point. Um, what the PBO did is the parliamentary budget officer, they examined the increasing cost because it's going to go up every year, the carbon tax. It's going to hit, I believe it's $130 a ton. Um, in 2030. And they say at that point, uh, it's going to clear households will clearly experience a net loss. And they say that, you know, there's even if you get a subsidy, if you're at the lower end of the income scale, it's not going to match what you're paying. Um, the response by the minister was that the PBO reports one sided because it doesn't account for economic opportunities that will come from decarbonizing and creating clean tech and clean tech jobs. And that's what I found I took issue with because um, that is what we hope will happen, that there'll be these jobs, but there's no guarantee that people who are affected by this, especially the lower end of the income scale, will be benefiting 
from those jobs, either directly or indirectly. So I found the minister's comments, uh, you know, uh, basically acknowledging there's a problem, but offering a solution that that you can't predict if it's actually even going to work. Uh, everybody talks about, and, and honestly, Tasha, we've been talking about these green jobs that are coming for 20 years. I mean, that was the whole shtick around the wind turbines and whatever. There was a plant in Tilsonburg, and now they're gone. So when are the, we going to start the, to see the actual rewards from this? Well, green jobs, first of all, you got to define what green jobs are, because everyone talks yeah. about green job. What, what yeah. is that? So the United Nations actually has defined what is a green job, and uh, they define it as positions in agriculture, manufacturing, R&D, admin, or service activities aimed at protecting the environmental quality, restoring it, or preserving it. So it could be a whole bunch of things. I mean, you could say, you know, ecotourism is a green job. Um, organic food productions, a mm. green job. And of course, energy and transportation, though, are the big sectors. People say, well, you're gonna, like you said, wind turbines. We're going to service wind turbines. That will be a green job. Um, but the government has estimated that we're going to create all these green jobs. We don't even have enough workers to fill them because a lot of these jobs demand specialized knowledge, uh, a degree, um, special experience. Our workers don't have that. So are not enough to fill these these theoretical jobs. So, again, there's a mismatch between what we're seeking to do and the actual ability of people to participate in the so-called green jobs revolution. This sounds like extremism gone mad, Tasha. And like most Canadians, there's an issue with the planet. We got to do something. We've got to get on the right path, as you put it. Uh, that being said, uh, it, it seems that it's an all or nothing venture. Uh, people have been saying for 20 years here in, uh, uh, you know, to use liquid natural gas to help get off of coal and such. We, uh, we're responsible for, uh, one and a half to two percent of the world's greenhouse gases, yet we're we're sitting on all of this clean energy that people want. The prime minister came to Hamilton uh, to talk about DeFasco turning its furnaces from coal burning to electric, never said anything about, you know, a giant natural gas pipeline that was going to have to be built in order to do that. Uh, and, and people are complaining, well, wait a sec, I thought this was all green, despite taking 60 percent of these uh, of these pollutants out of the air. Why are we not selling that instead of some? Something that's impossible, which is all or nothing. Why are we not doing this step by step? Well, it's a good question. And there are steps. There are step by steps being taken. There are. And we shouldn't ignore that. Um, you know, there's huge carbon capture facilities that are being yeah. built out west. There's an attempt to create a circular economy where the, the byproducts of fossil fuels are recycled and or captured and make more fuel or are kept away from the environment. So there's there's efforts and, and successful projects all over the place that are doing this. But the problem is we introduce the carbon tax. See, this is where it gets, it gets sticky. The question is, would those things be happening in the absence of a carbon tax? And I think the answer is that actually, yeah, because you look at the United States, they do not have a national carbon tax. They have about a quarter of their population, 30% of their GDP in 13 states that have introduced cap and trade and carbon pricing. And Ontario used to be, you know, part of the California market in that. Um, but Doug Ford pulled us out. We now have a federal carbon tax here. But the point is in the United States, they didn't do a national carbon tax because of the negative impact on low income people in particular. So they have places where it makes sense to have green energy. You might have a lot of hydro, like Quebec in, on, in Canada, for example. Yeah. You may have a lot of ability to have solar farms. Think of Arizona, places that get a lot of sun. Like there are places where green energy makes eminent sense. 
Other places, not so much. So this is the point I was making is that this tax is necessarily facilitating all this innovation that we're talking about. Where do we go from here? Uh, we've said since the McGinty days, since the wind days, it seemed that as soon as you say green to Canadians, oh my goodness, we got to do something. How much do you need? They're willing to write the check. Are we using green as a reason to collect money? Is it a revenue generator that's not producing a lot of results now? Well, that's the issue that people have. When you see the price of gas go up three cents at the pumps, does that mean you're all going to start driving less because it's there? Well, some people may choose to if they have an option. But if you're living in a rural municipality, for example, you do not have an option. You have to drive. Even if a suburb, you have to drive. It's false to say you can build transit for the entire country. We can't do that. It's also your heating costs, you know, depending on where you live, you don't have certain options. Electricity might be more expensive than fossil fuels, for example. So we have to look at this and say, what makes sense? We will continue to use fossil fuels for the foreseeable next 20, 30, maybe even longer years than that. Sure, we should find ways to use less and where it makes sense. Absolutely. Transition to as much green energy as possible, but don't put that burden on people who cannot afford it um, and assume it's going to it's going to create a virtuous cycle. It will not necessarily do that. So a tax is not equal to the amount of innovation you'll get. Um, innovation exists where you know you can make money from it, right? So that's really the mm -hmm. issue. Green energy becomes a moneymaker for various companies. That's where they will put their efforts. And that's what's going to drive the green revolution. And again, as soon as companies realize there's money to be made, luck out, get out of the way. They'll be they'll be rowing uh, all in the same direction. Where is the carbon tax going then? If it's you know the U.S. has found other ways to do this, where are we going with this? Because again, it just seems to be a revenue generator that generates no results. Uh, and, and and again, when other things are, are are and rebates are coming, and yet we're seeing no touch to the carbon tax. It in fact going up. It, again, it just it it kind of lends to that to that thinking that it is just a revenue generator for them well we're gonna get about eight billion dollars we got about eight billion dollars um uh from the carbon tax in 2022 to 2023 so that is a very large amount of money you're absolutely right so where does it go that is of course the big question most of yeah. the government uh, most of the money goes to general revenue Right. I think it's about 74 yeah, percent yeah. of it goes just to general revenue. And we know what general revenue is. It's whatever the government wants to spend it on. So, again, yeah. to your point, um, is it creating the kinds of green jobs, green energy, all those promises that are out there? You can't say it is. And so it's false for the government to, to say, well, you know, feel good about paying this tax because it's going to a good cause. You don't know. And that's the issue that I have as well. I think in a lot of people, it's that you're imposing this burden. Yeah, there's rebates gone that are going out the door. So some people are not paying more than they're paying at the pumps. They're getting refunded for it. That's fine. But there are people who are not. And the parliamentary budget officer has said quite clearly that balance is going to tip. So let's be honest about it. And let's find another way rather than putting the burden on the consumer to drive innovation in our economy. Tasha Kiridan with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, uh, latest in the National Post. Stephen Gibal has no plan for those left behind by the green uh, innovation. Tasha, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. 
Oh. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Uh, if you were around a TV screen yesterday, pretty hard not to see the Trump circus rolling in and out of New York City uh, and then back to Mar-a-Lago uh, to follow the voyage. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So, Reggie, you've, you've watched this for the last 24, 48 hours and what has happened in New York City and such, and then obviously a rally in Florida. What stands out for you? How do you what's the fallout of all of this? What are your thoughts after watching this? Well, I mean, look, uh, at the end of the day yesterday, after we watched Donald Trump leave that courthouse and after we watched many of his supporters walk off the streets and go back to their normal life, we saw the former president also go back into his normal life. That uh, speech last night from Mar-a-Lago showed that the president has kind of moved back into campaign mode. He is using this to a political advantage. Uh, He is kind of getting higher numbers and a bit of a boost when it comes to the polling. So while this is uh, the first of what could be several legally perilous moments in his political life, he is is taking this uh, and using it to the best that he can. And raising lots of money in the process, we understand. Raising at least $4 million. That was the tally up to a couple of days ago from the day that the indictment was dropped. And this is just proof that the base that lies beneath Donald Trump is still firmly in place. It's going to make it much more difficult for other Republicans that are in the race or thinking of getting into the race to be able to take some of that oxygen away. And what we've also understood is that some of the base that's giving new money is from independents that may have walked away from him in 2020, but once again, see him as a political victim. So he's getting a short term benefit gain from this. So what is next as far as the legal wranglings with Donald Trump? I understand everything's on hold now till December. Can you give us a bit of an update there on the timeline? At least in this case, yes, until December. And that's for the legal team to be able to put their defense together for the prosecution to be able to deal with discovery matters. Uh, so this is going to kind of, you know, sit on the sidelines, but not simply on the back burner. But it's just w- one of, of several. I mean, the, the uh, district attorney's case in Georgia in the election fraud scandal, along with uh, a January 6th uh, investigation and the investigation into mishandled classified documents, those are moving forward, some of them potentially coming to a close in the near future, meaning Donald Trump may be out of a courtroom in New York for the time being, but there is a possibility here that he could be in a courtroom in another state or in a federal courtroom before he goes back to the Manhattan court. And we understand he did have a win regarding legal fees and Stormy Daniels and a defamation suit. Uh, that one, uh, I'm, I'm going to have to defer on that one. I'm, I'm unaware of that. But okay. at the end of the day, uh, this, is, uh, this is a moment that, that the former president is still vehemently denying. He is still saying that he had no part in any of the allegations that were thrown at him. He and his legal team believe ultimately that he is the victim here of wrongdoing. So the fallout after this, he seems to be gaining momentum uh, through this exercise, Reggie. He does seem to be gaining momentum. Uh, And from the political experts that I've spoken with is that this becomes problematic now, Scott, for the rest of the Republican Party. Uh, While they see him as a political victim, while they see the indictments here as politically motivated, they're also still lining up behind him. So for someone like Ron DeSantis, who has a political uh, future aspiration, for someone like Nikki Haley, who's actively in the race trying to run to Uh, towards the White House, this is a difficult moment for them because they need to be able to carve 
uh, a path forward. And while there is some you know, benefits to the former president, at least right now, in the long term, is this going to be an opportunity for the Republicans to say, look, there is simply too much legal and political baggage in the background. We need to put somebody else at the top of the ticket. So however this kind of rolls out over the next couple of weeks, even the next couple of months, before this moves into primary season, we may see a bit of a shift in the Republican Party. Is the Republican Party hoping that something else takes him out of this race other than uh, them having to stand up against him? Well, I mean, look, it's interesting here in that just over the last couple of hours, we found out that the former vice president, Mike Pence, may take part in some form of uh, testimony to uh, to the federal side when it comes to an investigation into January 6th. So we could see the Republican Party right now moving towards a, hey, look it, there was an investigation into Donald Trump, charges were laid, and they stuck, and this is now going to go forward. Maybe if we participate, this is going to potentially leave Donald Trump on the sidelines and give us an opportunity to reshape the party, leaving Trumpism in the conversation, but maybe removing Trump himself. This is something the party is likely has been grappling with for the last several years and now may be trying to work to retool to their best advantage going forward. Are candidates, Republican candidates, thinking, you know, if I speak up, I'm going to get targeted, so I've got a turtle and go along with him till he's out of the way? It's been the way that it's been for the last several years. Anybody yeah. who speaks out against the former president uh, finds themselves dealing with potential retribution. Uh, someone like Ron DeSantis, who was very closely tied to Donald Trump during his political life, uh, they've become basically foes at this point. And the former president has, you know, used names to make fun of Ron DeSantis and tried to tarnish his political career because mm. DeSantis was speaking out and starting to get momentum when it came to polling. Uh, so there is a real fear here that if Donald Trump is able to kind of avoid all of this political nightmare and still maintain his position at the top, that he could still control enough strings to get uh, other Republicans to kind of fall by the wayside or completely out of line. And that is a reality that Republicans have had to deal with since Donald Trump entered the political sphere. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. So far, we have not been able to confirm any provision of lethal aid, but this is something we we follow very closely, and we also communicate very clearly that this will be a big mistake. That is the head of NATO warning uh, China against prov- uh, providing lethal aid to Russia, saying it would be a historic mistake. This comes as fresh, uh, French president travels to Beijing to meet with the Chinese president and attempt to curb the war in Ukraine. Uh, to talk about all of this and bring us up to date, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. So first, let's start with uh, the French president heading over to meet the Chinese president. How significant is this? What can he accomplish? There's a fascinating multi-layered game going on here. Uh, president Macron was going over, but Ursula van der Leyen, representing the EU, is also with him, along with a very large delegation of business people. So the what's going on, apparently, is... Mr. Macron is trying to position France in particular to be sometime an interlocutor in regard to the Ukraine war. He's been after, he's been trying to do that since the outset. But he also is trying to get China to play a positive role, a constructive role. So at the same time, uh, everybody knows that what's 
really going on is an attempt by China to drive a wedge between the EU and the West and uh, Ukraine. And at the same time, the opposite is going on. Uh, the EU is there and Macron is there to try to pull, a, pull the uh, Chinese a bit away, possibly, from total um, uh, unofficial support of Russia. So the possibility exists that China could at some point actually play a positive role, since they are the only conceivable player on the globe right now, and telling Mr. Putin that he's made a mistake. So there's a, a lot of multi-layered activities going on, but underneath a lot of it is uh, is business. The uh, EU is, I believe, China's number one. I think China's the EU is China's number one business partner, vice versa. And this is a business deal trip. Uh, obviously, China doesn't do anything unless it benefits China. At what point does Russia become a liability uh, for China? Because it seems like they're playing both sides of the fence here. They clearly have committed themselves to Russia. They they are neutral on <laughs> on the surface only. They are clearly major supporters of Russia. They, uh, as you know, Xi Jinping visited Russia very recently, and he did so shortly after Mr. Putin was declared an international war criminal with a, an arrest warrant really on his head. And they shook hands, and they were, you know, my dear friend, and so forth. And they were caught apparently on a hot mic. I mean, that is. Perhaps it didn't mean to be overheard, but just at the end of that three-day meeting, which is a major show of support for the embattled and isolated Mr. Putin, uh, apparently Xi Jinping said something to the effect of, this is the time of a, in 100 years when geopolitics is changing and we are driving it. And Mr. Putin, Mr. Putin answered, yes, I agree. So they are a shared partner in changing the geopolitics of the world in favor of the autocracies, the two of them together. And the rest of all this goes on around them. Uh, when you, as you follow this, Elliot, and I try to learn as much of a, about it as I can and, and, and educate everybody or at least bring it to their attention, it seems to me that the Chinese Communist Party is on full attack mode. They are, I mean, you can say what you want about the West, but we're not going into other countries and trying to steal territory or undermine them in any way, uh, shape or form. Uh, we're just trying to kind of look after ourselves and do the right thing for us. But it seems Russia and China are overly aggressive. It's not about taking care of their own people. It's about advancing their territory, advancing into other parts of the world. Is that accurate? I think there probably would be a long discussion about what the West is and is not doing around the world. But yeah. uh, generally speaking, that is uh, certainly correct at this, in this era. We have a situation where China has laid out a blueprint for being the world's foremost power by 2049, they, they, they have steps on the way to get there. That includes, among other things, modernization of their nuclear weapons. They've already essentially taken over the, much of the South China Sea, where they've never had territorial claims. Uh, and they've weaponized it. They're militarizing it. In the East China Sea, they are also, they have border disputes with uh, India as well. So they are very much on the advance. We know that they're United Workers Front is, is very active in pursuing influence operations. That's certainly been in our news, but it's also operating, of course, around the world. China is an emerging power. Uh, unquestionably, it's how they choose to emerge, as you and I have discussed, 
that really we need to talk about. And what we need to talk about is wolf warrior diplomacy and subterfuge as they rise to power. Uh, we're hearing more about a military facility in the Arctic uh, and China looking to purchase that. The U.S. saying, hey, what's going on here? What do we know about that? Well, one thing, just uh, since you've raised it, is that the expansion of NATO by the taking in of Finland as a full member, yeah. uh, as of basically today, and the foreign ministers of NATO are meeting, and Finland abandoned, along with Sweden, decades of professed neutrality. What that does, among other things, is Finland also has a presence in the Arctic, and it gives uh, NATO now much more of a toehold to watch exactly what you're referring to, referring to, what is China up to in the Arctic. We know they've sent the snow leopard through the Northwest Passage here, uh, an icebreaker. So this is a power that should be recognized as a global power, and now no longer a unipolar world, but a multipolar world. But it's how they choose to express that that is uh, giving grave concern around the world to us and to our allies. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the insight. Be well. Thank you. Good. Take care, Scott. All right. Um, this is fascinating because um, you think that the Allies are all together, but let's bring in Christian Leprec, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Uh, French's president is in China to meet uh, with the Chinese president. Uh, France's ambassador to Canada says Ottawa must choose between tying itself entirely to Washington or broadening its link to partner more with Europe, also while calling out Canada's weak military engagement, which we s certainly know all about. Chris Christian Leprac, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University with us now. Christian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, well, good afternoon. Yeah, the weather is a little bit interesting here, but, you know, uh, we all make do. Exactly. It's one of those days, that's for sure. Well, Christian, I thought that Europe and the U.S. and Canada were all on the same page. Uh, why must we choose between tying ourselves to one or the other? So this has always been the single greatest risk in Canadian foreign policy, which is essentially irrelevance. And so the risk for Canada is this, and this is why we need to be proactive on our foreign policy. This is why we need to invest actively in foreign policy. And this is why we need to invest actively in our most important foreign policy instrument, which is national defense. So here's the risk. Our two most important strategic relationships, one with the United States, the other one with Europe. So if Europe doesn't feel that we are relevant anymore, then it means that our entire foreign policy relationship will end up being tied to the United States, which makes us either more dependent on the United States or Washington will say, we're also irrelevant, so we're not really going to deal with you guys anymore. You can do whatever you want. And that then leaves us frozen out in the cold with sort of nothing relevant to offer. So the French proposition is that Canada isn't doing enough in order to be relevant to Europe and that Canada needs to be doing more, for instance, on the defense of Europe and the like. Implicit in that warning is, of course, that Canada is becoming less relevant overall because it's not contributing enough. And uh, the French always have an ulterior motive, which is that France always wants Europe to become more autonomous, strategically autonomous, in order to separate itself from the United States. But the warning to Canada is that if you believe that U.S. interests and U.S. ideology is diverging from Canada's national interests, then you need to be partnering more with Europe. And hmm. as it stands currently, you're not providing enough for Europe to make it interesting to continue to be a significant strategic partner 
with Canada. So how does Canada react to all of this? Because it's sort of like you're on the fence. You're neither here nor there. Well, I think it's the struggle that Canada is particularly facing now. So in the aftermath of the Trump administration, all of a sudden European allies have discovered Canada and Canada is an important strategic ally also to kind of offset some of the balance, uh, some of the power with, uh, within the continent. And Canada is a country that sort of has decades, arguably centuries of experience in how to deal uh, with, the, uh, with the United States. At the same time, though, by virtue of having discovered Canada, they're also, they've also discovered the fact that Canada hasn't really been doing a whole lot and that Canada has sort of been leveraging essentially the investment of other allies, not just the United States, but in Europe, in order to amplify its national, uh, its national interests, including its national security interests. And so the proposition here is Canada needs to make a choice. Is it going to be relevant and is it going to work actively with Europe and reinforce European uh, foreign policy and defense capacities, and are we going to make common cause? Or is Canada just going to try to kind of minimize its overall investments, hope to continue to ride coattails as we've done for decades, mm. uh, and hope sort of things uh, things work out for the best? And I think the proposition here uh, by our uh, French partners is uh, that uh, Europe is interested in working with you and that arguably, perhaps, you know, we can even curry favor in the United States by doing more in Europe, which would allow the United States to do more elsewhere and withdraw some of its assets. But as we've seen, Canada has trouble even doing the minimum that it's being called upon to do by European allies in the current security environment. Wow, this is just more of the same, uh, Christian. Uh, what about the French president traveling to China, the significance of this? So I think this is also a signal to especially the Trudeau government, which is that Europe is sort of reticent to draw this very hard line on China and that Europe, kind of like Canada, is struggling to figure out what is the balance in terms of the relationship of strategic cooperation, strategic competition, and strategic rivalry. And that Europe sees clearly more of a continued value, especially in the economic relationship with China than the United States. And uh, especially the French have included in that uh, this is also the case in Canada, and that Canada has always tried to offset its very significant economic reliance on the United States. I mean, 75% of our traders with the United States were very dependent on the U.S. by developing key economic strategic relationships with other countries, Europe, but also in the Indo-Pacific, that here's an opportunity, I think, um, all of branch from France sort of, look, you can partner with us and you can ride our coattails and we can kind of try to forge a European, maybe even a European-Canadian sort of strategy. Um, but... Uh, we also need to make sure we don't get caught up in particular French national interests, which are effectively trying to uh, uncouple, uh, especially Europe, from the transatlantic security relationship. So uh, it's a little bit challenging for Canada to navigate this current security environment. The problem is, of course... Ultimately, in Canada, we want to have a vision for how we're going to assert our interests disproportionately the way we did in the second half of the 20th century. And as you know, I'm looking for any federal politician right now who can actually articulate that vision, let alone a strategy of how we're going to get there. All right. Yesterday's headline in the Globe and Mail, Ottawa bends to push to purchase strategic air hangar in Arctic sought by Chinese buyer. This reminds me of the Manitoba lithium mine, which uh, ships lithium to, to China. Uh, now, all of a sudden, we're interested in this base. Uh, again, it seems like we're being caught with our pants down here, Christian. 
Yeah, as you know, I just put out a book on this, Polar Cousins, Antarctic and Arctic uh, Geostrategic Futures. Um, and it's sort of that we haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to the Arctic and that the Arctic is now in play. And look, it's an indication that our key, our most important strategic ally is paying much closer attention to our own, let alone the continental national security interests than Canada is. And so once again, we're rather late to the party here, uh, not realizing that this hangar is very uh, propitiously uh, located right close to a key Canadian radar download site, as well as a private site owned by a Norwegian company. Uh, so, um, you know, we're, when, when our U.S. allies have to remind us what is in our national security best interest, uh, I think we might be in a little bit of trouble. And for Canada, we should also be reminded that clearly China has designs on Canada's security, on Canada's resources, on Canada's economy, especially when it comes to the Arctic. And now is about uh, the right time to really start paying attention. Uh, it appears uh, watching this from the sidelines as much as I have, um, Russia and China have a different mindset than the rest of the world. They are in takeover mode while the rest of the country is learning or the rest of the world is trying to live with them and, and create a partnership with them. Are we, do we grasp how aggressive both these countries can be? Well, you know, these are countries that have made a living on lying, stealing, and cheating, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think we still take at face value what comes from these authoritarian regimes. I mean, look, just today, I mean, uh, the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, calling out China for, you know, last week when he was in Moscow saying, you know, everybody needs to keep their nuclear weapons sort of within their territory. And of course, then with a couple of days later, Russia announces that they're going to station tactical nuclear weapons in Belarus, and there's not a word, not a peep out of China, the country that allegedly has some interest in trying to drive some sort of a peace deal. So, you know, we these are, these are people, the truth is whatever the leader of the regime says today. So, you know, the truth today could be completely different from what the truth was yesterday. And the problem is these are not reliable partners. These are not countries that you can trust on anything because whatever serves their best interest today, that's what they're going to run with. And, um, you know, so I think we need to take very seriously the challenge and the threat that these countries pose to global stability, the global international order that has served us well um, and to the future of our own prosperity and our own democratic way of life. Christian Leprec with us, professor at the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University, fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. Always fascinating, Christian. Thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, you can also read in your Hamilton Spectator, Scott Radley. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Uh, here's a headline. Rats at Rito. Uh, sorry, rats at Rito <laughs> Hall. Wrong one. Rats in Ottawa. 24 Sussex Drive infested with rats. I mean, is anybody surprised here? You and I are old enough to remember them joking about this on the old Rick Mercer show. And this hour is 22 minutes and all that crap when guys like Kretchan were there. It just amazes me. And to me, this is another perfect example of the useless Ottawa bubble and how everything just gets punted down the road and left for someone else to worry about. What are your thoughts about this mess that 24 Sussex now finds itself in and nobody really willing to pick up the wrecking ball and do anything? Well, okay, so what you... Well, I don't think you should have the wrecking ball, Scott, honestly. I think it's... I think we... 
Uh, you know, the Americans, for better or for worse, uh, if you like their politics or don't like their politics, at least they're good about maintaining their historic places, the White House and the <laughs> Capitol and and other places. We, you know, 24 Sussex should be something that no matter who is sitting in it or sleeping in it right now, should be something we have some pride in. It really should. And we've left it so long now through so many governments that it now is going to cost such an extraordinary amount of money to fix up that it just – it seems bonkers. And so maybe now – and look, this is going to sound crazy. This is going to sound insane, but I don't think it is. I think now you have to be creative. What if – you know, they just did on HGTV. They brought in all their people <laughs> to do the Brady Bunch house. What if you What if you did a thing where you got a bunch of the Canadian HGTV people for HGTV Canada and said, "Look, we'll how about pay Habitat you. Habitat for Humanity? Maybe get them to do it." Well, I don't think they're going to do it. Jimmy Carter's, uh, you know, uh, not not able right now. But um, I, I, look, you find some way. You find some way because I think that it's it's we politicize things that don't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be politicized. And I think that a historic house that's the home of the prime minister is something that we can say, I don't know that that has to be political. Yes, a political person lives in it, but it changes which party. Yeah. So it, it's, I just, I think we, we, we make this too, you know, if a conservative is in there, no liberal is ever going to say we can pay money to have that thing fixed up. And if a liberal's in it, no conservative is going to say, yeah, pay for Trudeau to have a yeah, better but, house. But no sitting prime minister or even the next one is even going to get into it. Of You're course. talking like two or three prime ministers down the road here. Uh, here's what, like, honestly, the building is not of any use for what it is needed for anyway. So, okay, don't tear it down. There is some history there. Although, the history is really being rodent infested and not uh, now, yes. and now and inhabitable rather than the people that it is housed. However, you know, give it over to the National Capital Commission and a bunch of woke uh, Ottawaians. Let them run a heritage lottery of some sort. Make it into a, you know, the 500th museum in Ottawa and then just put it all behind us. Let it all uh, work itself out in the, in the public, uh, you, you know, historians keep it to what they want it to be and then just build a complex that we can actually be proud of that not only houses the prime minister of the day, whoever that is, but also has the ability to have meetings and host dignitaries and do all of the things that a state house is supposed to do. Instead, we keep pretending and moving around the little parks of Ottawa by the ledge there and 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 or, uh, by the ledge of the water, not the uh, legislative assembly. That's the House of Commons. Uh, anyway, instead of just dinking around with cottages and whatever, build a complex that is needed shove this useless building off to historians to let them do whatever and move on. But again, nobody seems to want to make that 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 decision. Of course, now we're in a, a situation where nobody has any money, so this is hardly the time so to that's, be doing it. So that's why you find a creative answer. I disagree with your idea that you just turn it into another museum because then in another in 10 years it becomes Dundurn Castle and school kids get dragged to 24 Sussex against their will for a field trip and are bored out of their minds and no one wants to see it. I think it's... I think it's acceptable to have a few things in this country that are historic, that are working, and that we put some money into. Look, Scott, uh, you could easily, without breaking a sweat, you or I or Bill or Rick or anybody listening right now could go into the $40 billion extra dollars the Liberals just designated for their new budget and find enough money without doing any damage to anything to find the money to fix Sussex Drive. 
easily. There is so much money that is being thrown around and wasted that if you wanted to, you could easily find the money to do it. Easily. But it's about finding the political will, which is why you shouldn't even have this as part of politics. There should be some independent group separate from the parties that says, you know what? We've got to do something now. We cannot have walls filled with rats. I thought that was a National Capital Commission. It that is. was their it, job. It, That's it, what the Prime Minister says. Not my problem, his problem, their problem. Yeah, and I don't know, though, that they have the money to be able to do the things that now have to be done unless some political party was to say, okay, we'll put some tax dollars into this. I'm Look, anyone who listens to my show understands I am not a tax and spend. I'm not a throw lots of money around guy, but I think there are some things in our country that have historic significance that we can put money into and not spend so much money on so many of the stupid things we waste money on. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great one. Stay dry. Yeah, you too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. 24 Sussex Drive, just like what was done in Hangersville, Scott, let's have a lottery in Ottawa to rebuild it and catch that ace.